This episode of the Paddock Pass Podcast is brought to you by Fly Racing. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass Podcast presented by Fly Racing. On this week's pod, we're talking testing with the final MotoGP test of the preseason completed out in Qatar. Neil is about to fly off to Qatar, so he's actually not going to join us this week on the Paddock Pass podcast. But luckily, we've got Adam Wheeler and David Emmett. And uh, Dave, you must be getting ready now for writing all your preseason. It must be, what, 20,000 words on what the wind's going to be like in Qatar? <laughs> the pre- very precise nature of the surface in uh, Qatar. So, yeah, um, uh, I've still got to sort of run down the test. I've had sort of other things going on um, uh, in the background, but... Um so I've got to run down the test, uh, but that will then segue nicely into a uh, into a season preview. And obviously, there was some news which I'm sure we will talk about later, which may be of influence on that on the season. Yeah, obviously, Mark Marquez out on track in Montmelo. He's been able to get himself out on a Honda road bike, and at least now he's been able to test out that uh, that injury and see how he's going to how he's going to fare. But Adam Wheeler back on the pod and add. I'm sure while Dave's getting ready for 20,000 words on the Qatar surface on Marquez's injury, I'm sure you're just about ready to remind yourself another week of Zoom calls is upcoming. Yes, yeah, my favourite part of the back-to-back races, Steve. Yeah, <laughs> you, know, you get maybe a one or two day break before it all starts again. And uh, obviously, it's all going to kick off pretty soon. But uh, for the MotoGP paddock, most of the MotoGP teams are still out in Qatar. The riders have come back to Europe. The Moto2 and Moto3 teams, they've all flown out for their testing, Dave. But when we look back at the Premier class and uh, the three days of running that we had in Qatar, it was pretty much only two days, really. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, if anyone saw the uh, video from the F1 testing, the sand in that region, because they were testing in Bahrain, which is, I think, 100 kilometers as the crow flies, um, uh, the there were really strong winds. There was loads and loads of sand, and it was just not it was just not safe. I mean, there was some uh, some fantastic shots of uh, Polis Bargaro going down the front um, uh, going down the front straight, throwing up clouds and clouds and clouds of sand behind him. Um, there was literally no uh, no point on the last day, but most people got what they wanted done, um, with the exception of Suzuki, which we'll come to later. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, th- we got a lot of testing done. Everyone knew that there was this risk of uh, strong winds um, and conditions on uh, the, was it the Saturday? I can't remember what day it was. On the second day, were were nearly perfect. I um, It brings, you know, the uh, the idea of testing, pre-season testing, I think very much to the forefront of everybody's minds because, Yes, it's traditionally in Sepang in Malaysia, and you can understand the reasoning for that because, you know, Japanese technicians, much more than usual for a race, uh, flock to what is relatively a, a next door country. But even then, you know, Sepang has a tendency to throw a shower and disrupt the schedule and um, be quite unstable in terms of giving a, a decent environment for running through motorcycling for the first time. And Qatar, for me, I, I, I find baffling as well, because not only are they testing in, you know, very kind of high temperatures in between the 30s and, and, you know, even up to the high 30s in the afternoon, they go into dust, the track temperature drops, they go into um, a layer of humidity, which, you know, we've all been to La Salle and, uh, you know, on this call at least, and we know that when the nighttime descends, I mean, sometimes the G 
dew is running off the top of the the pit garage's roofs like it's raining. Um, so the conditions vary greatly for testing, and it's it's puzzling to me why you know teams are not using a circuit like Jerez, which I think Miguel Oliveira actually said would be a you know very suitable racetrack for getting a general gauge of of the bike for for the tracks most of the tracks in the Grand Prix season. Um, maybe it is just the the, the Japanese wish to you know, have something a little more logistically friendly in Sepang. Um, and then Qatar, obviously, because of the first back-to-back race. But, uh, you know, I, I just think, guys, there must be a more sensible kind of or consistent option. Well, it's one of those things as well, Ad, where you look at it and you think, after everything that's happened in the last year, what things can actually be taken out of a race weekend? You know, Formula One got rid of Friday for one of their races at a brand new track and it threw up a great weekend of racing at Imola. You know, you look at, Supercross, they've had, you know, three races in a week. You know, that's something that, you know, if if they decide to bring that in full time next year, everyone's going to say, oh, this could be quite an interesting thing. For testing, I'd love to see it where they said, right, we go to Hareth, but for one day we're going to use the full layout, for the next day we're going to use that crappy chicane at the end of the lap. You, know, you try different layouts so that you actually get lots of different configurations out of track. So you try and find, you know, somewhere like, I'm sure Portimao's got a host of, loops you could use aragon's obviously too cold for winter testing but you know there's lots of different layouts you can use there so surely there's options like that dave that could really expand what the teams can do during the course of a test well yeah except for two things uh well one thing or perhaps millions of things and that's money um uh, it, it costs money to rent a circuit um uh, even for an official ERTA test. And uh, I I mean, like, I, I honestly don't know the details. Uh, I suspect that um, the ERTA test is uh, free at Qatar. Um, I, or certainly they're not going to be pay, uh, paying a lot of money. Uh, I think Sepang, the ERTA test at Sepang is sort of quite heavily subsidized. It's, it's not a full time. The actual shakedown test is paid for by the factories. And so that's just, uh, then they're paying full whack. Um, so it's a question of money. And, um, again, now you can't really compare it now because we have, you know, Travel restrictions are much, much, are a much bigger deal. The, the the fact that, for example, Suzuki stayed out between the test and the race um, uh, because they didn't want to, you know, fly backwards and forwards uh, and risk picking up infections. Those sort of things are really, really, re- really, really important. That's what makes things really, really complicated. So yeah, I, I think that that is a, a much, much bigger deal than. Um, you know, the ideal track. I mean, you know, in, in an ideal world where everyone would have loads of money, I mean, in an ideal world, um, it would also not rain in uh, Sepang and uh, not be cold in uh, in Qatar uh, and uh, be perfect conditions in uh, in Jerez and be completely free from MotoGP. But the, the world doesn't quite work like that. I like the idea of everyone having loads of money, Dave. If that was the case, we wouldn't all have to sit in a podcast every week. Um, the one thing about it is, I, I, I do always wonder about the cost of these tests. And I know that when you talk to, you know, when you see the riders out, you know, on their group practice sessions, whatever you'd call that, uh, I think there's some tracks in Spain where it costs three grand a day to rent so that everyone sort of throws in a few hundred quid and that's what sort of makes up the kitty i know whenever you see the private tests so whenever you look at you know hareth where ducati or kawasaki will rent the track for superbikes 
I think it's like 20 grand a day, 25 grand a day. So it's 50 grand for the test. Everyone throws in, you know, four or five grand. And then there you go. That's that's you sorted for the test. Like in the greater scheme of things, the cost of being able to rent a track isn't the issue for any of these manufacturers. It's just a case of trying to figure out where's the best place for them to test. And, you know, Sepang is the ideal place to test. It's got everything. It's a real challenge for engines for chassis for riders it's ideal for getting yourself back up to speed but like you said you can easily have it where a tropical storm comes in and suddenly there's a downpour and the day's wasted qatar we always had it where we'd have you know three four hours of running that were completely useless so teams wouldn't go out this week it's obviously been worse with the sandstorm but you know there is no real ideal world for them i think uh, miguel would probably just want everyone to be in portimao the whole time it's, uh, I think, sorry, Dave, if I'm cutting across you, but uh, I, I just struggle to find the um, the rationale behind having five days in La Salle, uh, you know, especially knowing the conditions for teams, riders, uh, all the staff of MotoGP to be there uh, with copious testing, uh, limited mobility, uh, high restrictions. It's, it, you know, it's certainly not as easy as a European base round. And let's face it, that's where the majority of the teams are. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit lost on thinking behind it. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I mean, think... Sorry, Dave, you, um, you go on ahead. Uh, again, I mean, like, um, the reasons that it's sort of, you know, five days in Qatar is just basically because um, it's much more difficult to actually fly, fly backwards and forwards. It's much easier just to have everyone in one place uh, and risk it. I think that was perhaps also the lesson of uh, 2020 uh, when everyone was out in in uh, in Lausanne and all of a sudden nobody could fly and so they only had a motor two and a motor three race, uh, which was a strange and really quite an interesting weekend. But uh, you know, not uh, um, n- not what the TV broadcaster had paid millions and millions and millions of uh, of euros for. Um, in a normal year, you're completely right, and I think also that Lozale is a much worse place to test than uh, than Sepang because Lozale, uh, as we keep saying, you've got maybe two, maybe three hours where it's producing actual useful data because it's too warm during the day, and then you get to sort of the hour before race time, and then race time, and then that's it. Um, uh, then, then the temperature gro- drops off a cliff, so like the last hour is usually a bit wasted. Um, uh, Sepang, yes, it can rain. I've never been there where it was, you know, completely washed out all day. Um, it, it can be dry in the, or it can be sort of like wet in the morning. Um, but it, the the tropical heat means it dries out. The, the track dries out very quickly. Uh, and there's you know a shower at four o'clock for fifteen minutes, uh, but by five o'clock, quarter past five. The, the the track is dry again it's just that you've got that sort of section in the middle of the day um you know maybe an hour to uh around sort of you know one two o'clock where it's absolutely steaming and far too hot for uh, for, uh, for everybody but that's also when you'll see the riders go out and do race runs um because they're punishing the engine and they're punishing themselves and they're testing their own fitness it's a really good way to find out if you're going to if you're going to survive yeah, Dave, obviously you mentioned there the millions and millions that TV companies spent and they were disappointed last year not to get the Premier class. That's obviously just your pay packet with Dutch Eurosport, <laughs> I presume. But, uh, well, maybe it's Frank. He's obviously going to be earning the big bucks. But uh, let's uh, let's look at uh, what we what we know from the Qatar test. We'll move on. We'll go manufacturer by manufacturer, just like we did after Qatar won. And we'll start off with Honda because that's where the big news is. Mark Marquez flew out to Qatar 
there was a few pictures of him in a gym and he got his vaccine and then he flew back to go to Montmelo and straight out on a street bike to be able to test out his injuries at. Yeah, well, I think, you know, we have to tackle the subject of the vaccine at some point as well, Steve, on the pod. Uh, but uh, more important than the fact that Mark is riding again, because, you know, we, we've seen images and pictures of him, yes, on two wheels, both on a minibike and then, you know, an RCV kind of hybrid or road version, uh, an S. Uh, but, you know, the, the fact that uh, we don't know how you know, strong he is, how well it went, uh, whether he's anywhere near being able to, you know, ride a, a MotoGP bike again. But for me, from the test for Honda, um, you know, you had the encouraging speed of Stefan Bradl. Uh, Alex Marquez struggled a little bit um, and actually wouldn't have ridden on the final day anyway because of a, a cracked bone in his foot and his right foot. Uh, but Paul Spargaro, I think, uh, emerged with a lot of credit uh, from the test. Uh, you know, his... Uh, his synergy already with that motorcycle already looks promising. Um, you know, I think HRC would have been encouraged by the, the lap times that he made as well as, uh, you know, the way that he's adapted to the motorcycle. Uh, so, yeah, you know, for Honda, I think there's some encouraging signs. The fact that 93 is almost ready, but then also, you know, um, 44 did a pretty good job. Yeah, Dave, obviously one of the big things coming into this test especially was how's Paul going to adapt to the Honda and like we've obviously talked about it in our pre-season shows about what we expect from Paul Ad's actually put his money where his mouth is and uh, he's he's betting on Paul for the season but uh, you know I think everyone looked at it that this should all suit Paul it should be a bike that suits his riding style but there's always that question mark until he actually goes out sets fast times and it wasn't just that he set a fast time, he was setting consistently fast times. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he adapted, he did adapt really quickly. He got up to speed very quickly. And also you saw that, um, uh, you know, basically every day he got better. Uh, every day he also understood the bike more. He said, um, you know, he was trying to learn where the limit was. He was trying to learn where the limit was sort of slowly rather than to throw himself at the scenery a number of times. Uh, but he did say he was waiting for his, uh, waiting for his first crash because he didn't have a single crash until I think the second, uh, the second day of the second test. Um, uh, first of all, he said, you know, he, he, he was looking for the limit on the front end. That, that to him was the most important thing. He found it, it eventually he found it in braking. So he found where the limit was in, in braking into the corner. The next thing was to find the limit, um, sort of actually in the corner. Um, um, that's why he was sort of looking for the crash, expecting the crash. Um, the crash that he had actually was uh, sort of the rear let go. So it was a completely different crash. It was a crash he hadn't been expecting, um, but, you know, also something that he could learn from. Uh, I, he says he's still not completely found where it is. He thinks he understands how the bike work goes around uh, Lazale, around Qatar. But, you know, once we get to Portimao and then Jerez and all those other tracks, he's still he's still going to have a lot to learn. So, yeah, it looks like uh, Ad, uh, Ad's uh, money is safe. Um, and he's he just looking quite impressive and very happy, really. Ad, obviously your bet is that uh, Paul will be the higher placed, well, non-Mark Marquez rider on the Hondas. And it must give you a lot of hope whenever you see that LCR must be running out of bikes at this stage. They had a lot of crashes during the course of these tests. 
Yeah, I wish I had added a zero onto the t- onto the ten, uh, Steve. You know, <laughs> I, no, I think it was great. I mean, let's not forget. You know, it was only I think three years ago, maybe even two years ago, that Paul had a huge crash uh, in preseason testing when he at Sepang uh, while he was riding for KTM, which you know set back his progress. Uh, with the team quite significantly in that season. I think it was 2018 because, uh, you know, he managed to finish the year with, uh, of course, that landmark podium for the manufacturer in Valencia. Um, so, yeah, I think, uh, you know, Honda have had that boost in the last day or two with uh, Mark getting back on the motorcycle. But, um, you know, things are looking pretty good for them. About Mark, I mean, he is the elephant in the room and uh, sort of I heard one or two things about what happened at the test and... Uh, Mark did a lot, a lot of laps, and he was quite fast. Um, Steve, have you got any idea what a decent um, superbike time is around uh, Barcelona off the top of your head? I mean, I realise I'm putting you on the spot here. Off the top of my head, Dave, of of course I do. Just uh, let me <laughs> check my notes because to be able to uh, the, know for sure. But uh, yeah, I yeah, think the, uh, you know the pole time last year was mid 41s, and uh, that's what a qualifying tyre, obviously. So you're looking 42s. Yeah, okay, yeah. Well, I mean, like, what I heard was... Um, but that's uh, also, was... Dave, with the old layout. Mark, yeah, of course, yeah, would have yeah. used the new Turn 10. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, exactly. That's also interesting to see how that's going to affect it because it's going to be it's going to be very, very different that time. I mean, uh, it, you know, the, the MotoGP record around um, uh, around Momolo is 140 point something, quite a low 140, if I remember correctly. Um and from what I heard, he was sort of like several seconds off that. But even on a uh, even on a sports bike, that's uh, that, that's pretty good going. Especially that um, that Honda RC two one three VS is not. Um, uh, I mean, the only reason he's using it is because he got a couple for free off of Honda. Um, they're they're not they're not fantastic. Uh, they're not fantastic sports bikes. Um, they you know they look fantastic. They sound fantastic. But um, uh, the there's a reason why Kawasaki is cleaning up in uh, in World Superbikes. Well, different bike as well. But uh, I say <laughs> that the one thing about that is that uh, for Mark, it, it at least gives him something. You know, like yeah. whenever. Like, Dave, we've got an interview coming up with Jack Miller that we're going to be posting for our Patreon supporters in the next couple of days. And uh, we asked Jack what he thought about the benefits of being able to just go out and use a road bike to be able to get himself up to speed, use that as his practice bike. And it was pretty clear that he sees a big benefit from this, a big advantage. This is a, a guy that for years, I think he said that he never even had you know, a practice motocross bike, never mind yeah. anything like this. So to be able just to turn up at a track, you know, go to Montmelo and and basically ride to your heart's content, that's a massive advantage for Mark. It means that he's really able to test out this injury. He's able to see whether or not he's able to open a window again, which is obviously a big cause for concern yeah. for Matt. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he did a lot of laps. And so uh, th- that would suggest that he has enough strength in his arm to, uh, you know, at least certainly try in... Um, uh, certainly try and free practice whether he tries in at Qatar one or Qatar two. I am honestly seeing the the the, the progress he's made. He made I because at first I thought no, pull him out the earliest. Now I'm starting to think no, he'll probably jump on the bike at, in FP one at Qatar one. See how he feels uh, at the end of the first day, and um, you know just see how it goes. And if it doesn't go well, then he can uh, he can always withdraw knowing that there's a race in seven days time. 
That was going to be my question, actually. Do we do we think he's actually going to turn up and attempt the first race? I think after the news today, it's looking pretty likely. Um, you know, at least like you say, Dave, give FP one a try and see if it's if it's going to go. I think having um, him in the paddock, in the pit lane, in his leathers, you know, there's there's got to be some psychological weight to that as well. I think uh, a few more people will be, if not looking over their shoulders, then they'll certainly be looking for somebody else on the timesheets. Yeah, and I think that like we saw probably the biggest test for Dave, for uh, Mark was whenever he had to give back his paycheck for last year. That's quite a heavy weight to lift. So to be able to give that back was obviously a good indication that uh, he's he's not feeling too bad. So I certainly expect him to be back in Qatar 1. <laughs> as much as anything else, just to put the pressure on everyone else, show them that, you know, the big daddy's still there. He's 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 ready to go. And that's going to have a big effect on everyone because even if he misses Qatar 1, it can be a case of, Everyone else knows then, oh, well, we got one free pass, but we're not going to get too many more. And it's a bit like what we saw last year with Sam Lowe's as well. He missed the first round, still went to the last round with a chance of winning the championship. And, you know, if Mark doesn't race, he's still going to think he's going to have a chance going all the way through the season. If he's not if he's not in Qatar 1, then the, mo- the, the most amount of points you're going to win is 25. And, you know, if I was any of those riders, I'd want more than a 25-point lead over Mark Marquez come the end of the season. Yeah, I mean, I think there is. Uh, uh, it re- it does make. It, I mean, it really does make a difference having him in the le- in his leathers in the garage, uh, even if he doesn't ride, because uh, it's going to put a lot of pressure on people to get a result. You, you know, you can't afford. If Mark Marcus is out, you can't walk away with you know five points. You have to come away with a podium. And so there's going to be more pressure on people. And there's always more pressure on that first race. That first race is always a bit mental because everyone is sort of like uh, getting back up to speed again. And um, it, it's easy to make a mistake. So I, I suspect, especially if Mark Marcus is there, especially if he, uh, even if he goes out like in FP1, does 10 laps and says, okay, no, 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 I'm, I'm not going to be strong enough to uh, to actually race. Um, that's it's really going to put a lot, a lot of pressure on uh, the anyone who fancies themselves a title contender, um, and they are going to make mistakes. And it's going to be easy to lose the championship at the first race. Um, nobody's going to win it there. Yeah, and I think as well, like you have to remember, you know, we're scheduled to have 19 races. There's only been two seasons in Grand Prix history that have had that many races. And if you think back to last year, who won the first two races? Who was second in the first two races? It was Fabio Quattararo, it was Maverick Vinales. After the first round, Mir was 25 points down. Who ended up winning the championship? And I think that's going to be the kind of mentality that Mark brings. Because as much as anything else, until he gets back on track he's still going to think that he's Mark Marquez until someone stuffs it down the inside and beats him. And, you know, he then gets a bit of doubt in his mind. He's still going to think, you know what? My whole life, all I've ever done is be the the top dog out there. The interesting, if you remember Mark Marquez's massive crash at uh, Mugello in 2013, his first season, um, I remember I interviewed him, I think, maybe the year after um, uh, or uh, either the year after or the year after that. So quite um, uh, uh, shortly after that. And he basically said, um, you know, because I asked him, are you ever afraid on a bike? You know, you never look like you're afraid on a bike. And he said, no, uh, I mean, I don't ever feel like I'm afraid. But after after, uh, Mugello, especially the year after he went back at Mugello, um, he was going down the straight over that hump, which, you know, where he'd had that massive, massive smash. And um, he was saying, 
uh, yeah, no, I'm full gas down there. And then Santi would, Santi Hernandez, crew chief, would show him the data and show him that it was just rolling off over that, uh, uh, over that crest a little. And to, in Mark's mind, he was flat out. In his, you know, his data was showing that he wasn't the, the, the uh, flat out. So there is, he does feel fear. He can feel fear. Um, I think, I honestly, even if he does race the, you know, even if he's really fit and he does race the first, uh, uh, the first race, I think uh, also with this maturity, we, you know, he is a bit more mature. He learned in 2015. I think this time he's also learned about trying to come back too early. Um, I reckon he would be happy with the top 10 in the first race, knowing, as you say, 20 races, there's a lot, a lot of, um, that's a lot of races. That's a lot of time to, um, uh, to make up any points you lose. So, you know, he's going to build and build, uh, to, to, to becoming more, get more confidence and, and, and really being able to push again. I think one of the things that's going to be interesting as well is the, what happens in Qatar, because the test showed us quite a few things. It showed us, obviously, Yamaha looked very strong, but very slow in a straight. Ducati looked very fast in a straight and uh, looked relatively strong as well in their race pace. So I think that, you know, if Mark does miss the race or, you know, doesn't score too many points, you could easily have it as well where one of those riders that's going to be a title contender could suddenly find themselves a little bit further down the order than they ordinarily would have expected. It's going to be very competitive in Qatar again. Yeah, like uh, like you kind of pointed out a minute ago, Steve. There is a precedent there because if you know, uh, you know, Fabio Quasarado came away from Jerez first in the championship, and he ultimately finished eighth. So you know, if Mark comes away from Qatar in eighth place, then there's no reason why he can't finish the season as world champion. And um, you know, Lausanne, as we've said before, is a, a very kind of special track, a particular track. Uh, you know, it favours the Ducati. Um, you know, the Ducati, uh, you know, we'll get onto them in a second, you know, had, had a strong test, I believe. Um, and Jack Miller really underlined his credentials for some serious success this year. Um, you know, I think we'll see a lot of Desmo Sedici in around the top of, of the sheets as well as vying for the podium in the races. Uh, but it won't, it's nowhere near a, a representation of what we'll find at different tracks where the Ducati has you know, traditionally struggled. Yeah, I mean, 2018, 2019, it was Andrei Dovizioso who won. So, um, uh, yeah, it's, it, it, and he didn't go on to win the championship. He did end up coming second, uh, but he didn't win the championship. You know, it was still Mark Marcus who, who won at the end. So, yeah, the, the, the first race is uh, indicative of, um, I mean, it's indicative of something, I suppose. It's indicative of what, um, where the relative strengths are, but it's not, you know, it, 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 it's not, uh, carving in granite the uh, championship results at the end of the season there's so much that can happen uh, in between and especially you get back to, to the European tracks which are very very different to the sort of you know the, the, they're tighter and sort of nagery and and uh, slower and uh, they have very different grip you know they the, a lot of them have a lot less grip um, um, it, it's not those peculiar conditions which you get in Lozale yeah it's 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 a very very it's a very different kettle of fish once we get back to europe in it, championships are won in europe because that's where most of the races are and that's where a, a very particular type of uh, racetrack is i think yeah and i think you know you mentioned it dave that qatar is not usually that indicative of anything and i think this is going to be what the 17th 18th year that MotoGP has gone to qatar and we've only ever had three or four riders that won in Qatar actually won the championship obviously Qatar wasn't always the first race it wasn't always a night race but you're looking back I think Mark in 
2014 was the last time that uh, the world champion won in Qatar. So you know it's not indicative of anything other than if Ducati struggle there, we know that they're a bit lost. If Yamaha aren't quite fast there, it's going to set off some warning bells. We saw during this test that you know the likes of KTM really struggled. But do we expect KTM to struggle during the course of the season? Not really. They're going to find their form as well. So I think that it's one of those things where for the manufacturers that go well in Qatar, they really need to take advantage of it. And right at the top of that list, you're looking at Ducati. This week we saw that you know they smashed the speed records or the unofficial speed records for a MotoGP bike well over 220 miles an hour. They've got good race pace. Miller looks very confident. So they really need to capitalize on having two rounds in Qatar. Uh, yeah, I mean they need to they need to take advantage of it. Um, not just in terms of um, say Jack Miller winning, um, they also need as many Ducatis on the podium as they can get. They need Jean Zarco uh, to be on the podium. They need Jean Zarco to be in the mix. They need him um, uh, mixing it up and taking points off other riders. They need Pekka Banyaya to be right at the front right from the start. Uh, the good thing was they all look good. I mean, honestly, I would say that Jack Miller probably looks strongest, uh, comes out of this test looking strongest. He was not just in terms of his, uh, you know, his pace, his speed. Um, They got all of the things uh, tested that they want to. They quickly, quite quickly settled on their new funky aero um, uh, package, which seems to be designed to reduce drag um, because the engines are frozen and because the engines are frozen, there's one way of gaining more speed and that's reducing drag. You know, you can't add more horsepower. You can tweak a little bit and get maybe one or two more out, uh, but you're not going to find sort of 10 horsepower. If you reduce drag, then, you know, maybe you can find another four or five Ks at the end of the, uh, at the end of the straight. Yeah. I mean, just talking about aerodynamics for a moment, because that's, you know, Gigassi are probably the most innovative uh, manufacturer when it comes to that area of bike development. Um, it's curious how riders are either very coy about the effects of aerodynamics or, you know, they, they just seem to downplay their effect somewhat, uh, certainly in terms of the, the effect it's bringing on the straight and also through the corners. Um, that's, that's one area of, of their comments and, and the many debriefs we kind of listened to uh, post-test um, was, was really kind of the, the lukewarm kind of reaction to to the aerodynamics which as dave pointed out is is an area where the the engineers can play with the most for 2021 yeah but i think it's precisely because um it's so important that they are not allowed to say anything they are told you know try not to mention it as uh, uh, you know try to say as little about it as possible precisely because their their comments can be used we know that manufacturers all read um what other riders say because they're trying to decode you know they're trying to get the feedback back from it and so what they do is uh, you know they're told not to speak about it or to speak about it in as general terms as uh, as possible i like it i don't like it that's uh, that's it because as soon as you start to describe it um then that's useful feedback for rival manufacturers and aerodynamics is it's become such a, an important uh, area anyway and especially this year, as I said, you know, the aerodynamics is going to be, they can't add horsepower, so they're trying to find speed another way. Dave, does that mean that the other manufacturers will listen to the comments that riders make? And whenever they say, oh, well, with this new fairing, I can give my 110%. And then that makes the other manufacturers really worried. 
Yeah, well, the, what they're listening for is at some point someone's going to say, yeah, I, I, I'm, I really feel, you know, I can really give my 111% and then they'll know that, okay, this one is 1% better and uh, so we're going to end up going three kilometers per hour faster at the end of the Lozelle Straight. Steve, you're winning, waiting, the, uh, you're winning in the, the cynicism stakes. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we're... As soon as as soon as soon as someone managed to give their one hundred and twelve percent, then we'll be hitting three sixty at the end of the uh, at the end of uh, the Qatar strike. <laughs> well, I, I'll be honest. I usually peak. give my fifteen, maybe sixteen percent. So <laughs> this is me maxed out right now. All I have is my cynicism. <laughs> Obviously, though, uh, Dave. Whenever you look at Ducati, there's a lot more stories than just uh, Jack Miller. We sat down with Paco Bagnaya as well, and. Paco really looks like a guy that he's not thinking of this as being, oh, I'm there to be Jack Miller's sidekick or I'm there where I might win a race. He's looking at this like, I'm in year three, I'm a world champion, this is my opportunity, this is where he can come in and really show his credentials as a premier class rider. He's got a real chance to be able to pick up race wins. And when we talked to him for the Ducati special that we have for patrons, it really was a case where both of us came off that call thinking, you know what? I'm really impressed with Paco and, and the attitude that he's bringing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he is there to win it. There, there is pressure on him as well in his uh, in his third year. He has to deliver. His first year was frankly disappointing. His second year, he really showed um, some really, really big... Um, he, there were race tracks where he was fantastic and others where he disappointed. And he said, that's it's really simple. It's down to confidence in the front tyre. He really struggled to get heat into the front tyre. Um, he had to figure that out. He spent the winter um, uh, trying to figure that out. And we asked him, you know, how he did that. And he explained a little bit about his strategy behind it. Um, and we saw it also again. Uh, at this test that he was really working on uh, trying to get heat into the tyre as fast as possible so that he can go as, uh, so, so that he can be competitive um, so yes he has a lot to learn I'm not sure again I'm not sure that uh, Qatar is going to be really really indicative of, of what he's uh, capable of I'm not sure that he's going to you know like walk away from Qatar with two victories but um, he's definitely going to be there, and he's he learned a lot last year. And to me, I think that's that's the most interesting thing thing about him. Yeah, and Adam, I think whenever you look at Paco, obviously he's always going to be compared to Jack because they've been teammates throughout his time in in the Premier class. But I think with Paco for this year, it's going to be a case of getting the win, getting a few podiums. He's going to have some bad weekends. Jack's going to probably be more consistent all the way through the season. But for Bagnaya, it's a case of just trying to tick off those boxes and then give himself the chance next year really to build on that and just keep making those steps forward. But you'd certainly expect him to be a race winner this year at some point. Yeah, I mean, from the interviews I've done with him, Steve, I love his mentality. I mean, there's a touch of the, you know, um, uh, perfectionist, maybe too much so. Um, but, you know, he's still very young. I think maybe 23, 24. Uh, so, you know, he has got time. But then... Let's not forget he's the Italian on that blood red bike. Uh, you know, he's vying with the likes of Franco Morbidelli uh, and a couple of other people like Luca Mooney and, and Aya Bastianini chasing him, um, you know, to be the 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 heir apparent to Valentino Rossi. So I think um, he's got to show some goods because as we've seen with Danilo Petrucci, who is a guy that's impossible not to, to like or to love, um, you know, you've got to you've got to do something on that bike. Otherwise, it's very you can very quickly fall out of favor. So uh, I think it's uh, a year where he will be given time to learn, but he's also got to show something. 
Yeah, and I think it's always interesting with riders like Bagnaya. And obviously, we also talked to Brad Binder for last week's show. We did an extra show last week where Brad obviously came through with, you know, bad bikes as well. Mahindra's just like Paco. And, you know, it really was a case of they teach you to be able to maximize everything. And now's the chance for Paco really to let that show that he can take advantage of all those lessons that he's learned and make the next step. And David, it's always interesting whenever you look at riders, whenever they're making those progressions, because we've got three rookies on the Ducati as well. And it's going to be interesting to see how they can make their steps forward. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, I'm going to more or less repeat what we said, what was it, the last time around, is that we've got three really different kinds of riders. You've got Enea Bastianini, who is just raw talent. Uh, you've got Jorge Martin, who is the classic MotoGP rider who um, sort of learns quickly. Um, and you've got Luca Marini, who's a, a, a slow burner, who um, uh, learns slowly, but once he gets going, um, you know, he learns his lessons properly and he learns them well. Um, and honestly, they, they sort of, they ended more or less in the order which i uh, which i expected you know luca marini wasn't uh, w- was the slowest of them um i think jorge martin was fractionally faster than anaya bastianini but they were all pretty close together and they were all uh, impressive you know they all showed they all showed flashes of something um which is really important and it's they're all on better bikes. They're all on better. They're, they're all better supported than uh, than last year. Um, there's no reason for them not to uh, not to succeed. Yeah, this is going to be a question for next week whenever we do a MotoGP preview show, where we'll talk about the rookies as a little section in that. And uh, one of the questions is going to be who's going to be the top rookie. And for me, despite what you what you said there, David, I, I'm I've always been impressed by Luca Marini. I, I like. He's got a lot of talent and it does take him time to learn. We saw that in Moto2, but also the jump from Moto2 to MotoGP is going to be a lot smaller than other jumps that he's had to make during his career. Other times never, he's obviously had the pressure of being Rossi's half-brother. Everyone talking about it every time he was on the screen initially. It's a bit like for Remy Gardner, for you know the first four years that he was on telly. It was only ever, there's Remy Gardner, son of Wayne Gardner. So it was a bit like that for Marini as well. Whereas, you know, now he's a guy that's won races. He's challenged for world championships. He's been a front runner. And I'm excited to see what he does on his first year on, on the, on the big bike, because I think he's got tons of potential. I think he could spring some surprises. Yeah. If I had to guess, I would say that, um, uh, Anaya Bastianini will finish ahead of Luca Marini at the end of this year, um, but I would put money on it being the other way around next year. Um, unless Anaya Bastianini is as special as some people think. Um, you know, it's going to be fun. It's going to be interesting to watch to find out. Steve, mark the time and the date because David Emmett is putting money. I mean, it's going to be a 2022 bet. So it's a whole year from now, but he's putting money on the table. Yeah, all I heard there was pretend money ad. Dave's playing Monopoly there in in the conservatory, I think. Well, anyway, um, I've, offered, I've offered you all um, I've offered you all dinner for um, for when um, uh, if Mark Marcus doesn't leave Honda early. So uh, you, you you've, you've all got that uh, you've all got that to look forward to. So we've looked at Honda and we've looked at Ducati. Obviously, we've also got a Ducati special on Patreon. So patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast for three dollars a month you can get lots of exclusive content one of those contents is going to be an interview with jack miller and peko bagnaya and a little bit of a recap on what we've seen from ducati so check that out on patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast when we come back after the break we're going to hear about all the other manufacturers in qatar 
Fly Racing believes that our most important obligation is to provide the highest performing products to riders worldwide. Offering both on and off-road products for every price range, Fly Racing is committed to reshaping expectations. Fly Racing revolutionized the off-road world with the Formula Helmet, featuring Rion technology. Visit flyracing.com and at flyracingusa on Instagram to learn more about the innovation that can keep you protected in 2021. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. We've already heard from Honda. We've already heard from Ducati. Dave, I'm going to bring you on to Yamaha as the next big talking point because this was another test where we saw the kings of winter testing coming to the fore and uh, Maverick Vinales looked very competitive again. Fabio Quattararo looked very competitive again. Franco Morbidelli looked very competitive again. And for a rare occasion, Valentino Rossi actually turned up at a test as well. So this really was a lot of positives for Yamaha over the course of... Well, let's be honest, five days of testing, there's there's lots that they can take from it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the things that we can take from it is that the 2021 Yamaha, um, uh, which they've changed the chassis to make it look much more, look and feel much more like the 2019 chassis. Uh, the 2021 chassis is a lot better than the 2020 chassis. Again, uh, Yamaha spent a lot of time working on aerodynamics, uh, trying to reduce drag to uh, to get more speed and their uh, speed deficit was I mean it's still huge but it's not as ridiculous it wasn't you know four Yamahas at the bottom of the time sheet uh, of the top speed sheets it was sort of four uh, four Yamahas heading up the bottom half of the uh, of the top speed sheets um so they were they were reasonable um what i found really interesting was Maverick Vinales talking about Spending all of his time working on himself—that to me is is really really interesting because you know Maverick Vinales' bigger pro, biggest problem is Maverick Vinales, um, and so working on you know riding in low grip, trying to understand how the bike is what the bike is like in in low grip—that's what's going to uh, uh, that's what's going to make the difference. Um, we won't necessarily find out at, uh, at Qatar because Qatar has usually has plenty of grip. Track temperature is never very very high. It's going to be much more interesting. Interesting to see what happens, uh, you know, at circuit. Uh, well, we're not going to Brno, but um, uh, a, a, a circuit where with a lot less grip. Yeah, Hareth um, in May is always a good test. Obviously, they've resurfaced Hareth, yeah. but you know, whenever it gets hot there, it's always sixty degree asphalt temperature. It's always a real yeah. test for everyone. Yeah, exactly. It's why a lot of people struggle. Um, uh, and again, uh, Moto two, Moto three tests um, are quite often uh, at Jerez, and the, the they test there in February when you've got sort of like twenty five and thirty degree uh, uh, track temps, which is fantastic. And then they go back in uh, at the beginning of May, and you've got sort of you know fifty five degree track track temperatures, and it's completely different um, uh, and all that. The other thing that was interesting that Maverick Vinales said is he uh, he said you know yeah sure I'm fast. Um, but this was on a clean track, uh, good conditions, loads of grip, loads of Michelin rubber. Moto Two hasn't been anywhere near this track, uh, so we, we've got no idea what it's like. So um, uh, yeah, it, it's going to be in, it's going to be interesting. Also, I mean, the I remember last year, two years ago, that what KTM were doing was they were testing at tracks when they still had concessions. They were testing at tracks. The day they were staying on for two days after a race weekend uh, at the places where um, Moto Two and Moto Three were testing, so they would come back onto a track which had uh, been sort of 
ruined by the by the Dunlop robber, if you like. They'd had they'd had the the Moto Two rubber spread all over it, so it felt completely different to the, the to the day before. And they really learned a lot about uh, you know riding with less grip, riding in, in in conditions which are not ideal, and they made a lot of progress. Yeah, and one of the things they were able to use with those tests as well was to be able to determine the tire selection for a race weekend, because Ad, this has been one of the big talking points. Whenever you know we do you know, a Friday debrief with a rider last year, it always seemed to center on, I'm kind of torn between which tire to use. If you had Danny Pedrosa going out for two days at Brno, it suddenly got very easy for KTM to say, right, this is the tire we're using right from the start of the weekend, let's save that up. And that was one of the key factors for them at times in those early season races last year. Whereas now it's definitely a case of everyone has to try and figure that out for themselves as well, but they've at least got some knowledge. And when you know we were listening to or talking to riders during the course of the Qatar debriefs, a lot of them were talking about, I now understand these tyres and how to get the most out of them. Yeah, Michelin had another uh, rear tyre to bring as well to the mix, Steve. But uh, some of the riders trying the soft front on race simulations and that was providing good... Uh, you know, traction throughout the the race duration they were doing and with uh, minimal drop off. So that was one of the interesting comments, especially from some of the Honda riders. Um, but just coming back to Yamaha, I think um, you know from the four riders that we've talked about, the the signs of Valentino Rossi are, are very promising. Uh, let's not forget, you know, he's he's switching teams, a uh, brand new environment for him, if not like a brand new motorcycle, of course. I mean, with Fabio Quattararo and Mario Vinales, you're talking about arguably apart from Mark Marquez, the two one-lap specialists that there are in MotoGP. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if Fabio's already, uh, you know, looking at the colours of the BMW he'll receive at the end of the season for his qualifying award. But, uh, you know, he's he settled into the factory team quite well. Uh, Rossi has, has found a couple of tricks to, to be able to elevate his pace. Um, so it's it's a little bit of hide and seek, I think, with Yamaha in terms of their their race potential. But and let's not also forget that that racetrack is a an ideal kind of mix of fast flowing corners, um, you know, which suits the Yamaha characteristic down to a T. And it's curious why the Suzuki perhaps wasn't, you know, um, as equally as competitive. Uh, at some points it was, but um, yeah, it was it was a good test overall for the Yamahas, and the nature of the track is another reason why I think the KTM slightly struggled. And Dave Adams obviously mentioned KTM and Suzuki, so let's move on to the world champions because when you look at a lot of what we saw after the test, when you're reading on Twitter or anything like that, a lot of people, all they would have read was Suzuki look a little bit lost right now, but whenever you actually look through the times, they weren't that bad. You know, Juan Mir was pretty competitive in his race runs. Alex Rins wasn't too far off either. So it looked like one of those cases where on the headline times, there's a little bit of ground to make up, but you know, we talked about it in Qatar one test preview where that's always been their big issue. But in terms of the actual bike, it looks like, yeah, they've got a bit of a step to make, but it's not like they're a million miles back. No, I mean, the Suzuki were actually um, most annoyed about losing the final day because they had a whole bunch of stuff lined up to actually test on the final day. They were actually going to start working on their race prep and race setup on the final day. Um, because they were still working on parts uh, on the first two days, you know, especially they were working on stuff for the 2022 bike, um, uh, uh, tried a new engine. They were going through a sort of chassis and, uh, and other bits and bobs. So, um, yeah, they, they had hopes to um, to get 
you know, prepare for the Qatar race, and I think they would have been a lot quicker had everyone actually ridden on the last day. Um, so I think they, I, I don't think this is a representative test for Suzuki, and the fact that they are still, you know, there or thereabouts, they're not, uh, you know, they don't look like they're going to walk away with it, um, but they don't look like they're completely lost either. Uh, so I think, uh, I think Jack Miller was saying, uh, kept saying, you know, we haven't seen what the, what what Suzuki have got up their sleeves yet. We 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 think, um, you know, that that was his like like his biggest question mark after the test was, you know, where Suzuki are. And usually, if riders have a question mark about something, it means they're actually you know quite worried about it, and they suspect that uh, that the, 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 they're going to be much much quicker than. Uh, than it looks on paper so I mean if I'm Shuan Mir and Alex Rins I'm, uh, I'm a bit um, uh, irritated about Qatar 1 uh, but thinking you know what Qatar 2 could be quite good yeah when writers are asking and talking like that it's usually because they're actually trying to see if we can give them any information but uh, yeah that's 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 never going to be too helpful for them <laughs> but uh, I think definitely Adam when you look at what we saw from Suzuki last year it's that they don't need to reinvent the wheel. They need to just try and make small steps. If they were already looking to test 2022 engine parts with Sylvain Gintoli and then use the final day to try some other things, that would indicate they've actually got a pretty good base going forward for this year. Yeah, that's right, Steve. I think Dave was bang on as well. I think the final day was the the time we're really going to see what Suzuki were capable of uh, in terms of lap times. Uh, not only race simulations, but I reckon they would have had a good old swing at the time attacks as well. So uh, for me, they're already the dark horses for for the first two Grand Prix because, uh, again, like Dave said, we haven't really seen, you know, what they've got up their sleeves. Yeah, the dark horses being the world champions. It's funny how MotoGP is, isn't it? <laughs> but uh, I think that when we look at how quickly things can change in MotoGP, we got a good indication on that with KTM because the test was five days of torture for KTM, really. You know, Brad Binder, he even said it himself, they probably would have been a lot more productive if he hadn't had so many crashes. But he did have a lot of crashes, Dave. It was a real struggle for Binder. KTM didn't really go well in Lozelle at different times in the past as well. So this isn't an ideal place for them to test their bike in a lot of ways. But it's also good for them to be able to see where they are somewhere where they struggle and to see the areas where they need to make that step. But uh, this was this was a tough couple of days for them. Well, it, it was absolutely a very it, it, yes, it was a very very difficult uh, t- test for them. Um, but the thing about uh, these sort of tests, the, the thing about struggling at a test um, is that this is where you actually learn stuff. It's, it's when things go swimmingly and everything uh, is fine. Uh, that you end up with really nasty surprises after sort of uh, um, once race uh, race time comes. So um, both Miguel Oliveira and uh, Brad Binder were quite were quite worried. Um, Miguel Oliveira was actually quite sort of frank about. It. He also said, you know, look, yeah, this is a bad test, but this isn't really representative. Qatar is a really bad track for us, and uh, to be, I mean, they are a, a bit behind. But they're not that far off, um, and so to be sort of within sort of spitting distance of um, uh, of the rest at Qatar actually bodes very well for the rest of, uh, for the rest of the uh, rest of the season. And from here they go to Portimao. They know Portimao. Um, they were very very good at Portimao, and so it gets a lot more interesting. I think I think there this is their this is their you know their bogey track. Um, if you can get your bogey track out of the way at the start of the season. That gives you, a, it's a good solid base sort of going forward. You know, you don't have to worry about it for the rest of the year. Yeah, I um, 
I kind of disagree with Dave a little bit there because I think how uh, Miguel... dare you? How very <laughs> dare you, Ad? <laughs> I think Miguel Oliveira was actually uh, a little serene um, at the end of the test. I mean, for sure, I think he would have liked better, but he seemed quite. Uh, uh, bullish that you know things were heading in the right direction um you know brad binder and each rider in orange had their own story uh you know olivera was was you know the expectation was there after winning the final round of course i think people were thinking well why isn't he top five uh he ended up being you know almost a, a second off i think uh you know in the fastest times but again you know he said the team he had to get used to them. They had to know him, which they still hadn't done. They, they worked together for less than five days in close proximity. Um, his teammate, Brad Binder, you know, had a disastrous second day. Uh, first day fell off quite, quite uh, twice, I think. Um, you know, once was caused by, um, you know, just gusts of winds blowing off through turn 14, I think. So, you know, that hit his confidence a little bit, but he managed to drag it back by the penultimate day of the test. Um, you know, Danilo Petrucci, of course, getting used to a brand new bike. And from what I can gather, Ika Likuwana had um, quite a bit of testing to do. Um, let's not forget that KCM also had Danny Pedrosa in the background running around, um, you know, on a bike, which, you know, should be the 2022 version of the RC16. So... Um, you know, I know the team were testing a lot of things and they got a brand new aero package like everybody, of course. They're the only team on the grid to be using uh, different suspension to everybody else with WP. So I, I could gather there was quite a few new things to go through there. Uh, you know, and Ovella, I, Oliveira, I think, hit the nail on the head by saying, you know, we're not just testing for this track, which is traditionally bad for us because the KCM is very much a get it stopped um, you know, Brad Binder has said repeatedly that the, the main strength of the bike is on the brakes and turning into the corners, um, you know, at LaSalle, which you, you don't necessarily need to do that that much. So, you know, the first two Grand Prix could be pretty so-so for KCM, but then, you know, we go straight away to Portimao, then to Jerez, it might see something different. Yeah, yeah, and I think uh, it's another one of those ones where whenever you dive into the times in a little bit more detail, Oliveira wasn't quite as far away as it appeared. I think he was a bit closer to the front compared to where it looked in the initial in the initial glance through the timesheets from each session. Even whenever you talk to him, like I'd said, you know, he wasn't he wasn't ready to throw in the towel by any means either. It was Brad Binder obviously enough, but it wasn't as as tough as I think it made it look on the timesheets. And you would have put him into that probably the second tier of riders in the in in the class so you know it wasn't too bad if he's able to come away with you know that kind of pace in the race he'll probably come away with top seven top eight which right now i think ktm would take the arm off someone for that in, in qatar one obviously they'd look to make a step down for qatar two but like you said Ad, this isn't a track that suits the bike and that's what's good about MotoGP at the minute is that all the bikes have very defined characteristics that work but everyone's able to get relatively competitive at all tracks. Like we're going to look at the Qatar weekend and we're going to look at it and say, someone's completely lost. And then we think, well, actually they're only a second off the pace around a one minute, 54 second lap. So, you know, they're not that far off pace. They're just a, a little bit off and it does put you all the way down the order. And don't forget, it was only four years ago that KTM made their debut at this circuit and they finished 16th and 17th. So I think, you know, if you're suddenly vying for sixth and seventh place, you know, for like less than five years later, then that's still progress. Yeah, I think they were two or three seconds a lap off or something. I mean, they were really, they were such a long way off that first uh, that first race. And uh, right now, I mean, you know, they're sort of a bit, not quite a second off. I think they're a little bit less than a, than a second off. So they're, uh, again, 
like you say, I mean, like top seven or top eight, I think that's going to be a much, uh, I think that might be a little bit too much, you know, but a top 10, if they can, if uh, Oliveira and Binder can come away with, you know, 9, 10, 11, something like that, that is sufficient points to be uh, in the game, uh, to have your stake on the table, um, going away from Qatar. It's if they, you know, finishing outside the points here will be um, uh, a, a bad thing. But the trouble with MotoGP is, you know, there are 22 fast riders. Well, there's 21 fast riders and, um, uh, and, and, and 22 good bikes. And they're all competitive. You know, it is really, really difficult. They, they get, there's only 50, there's 22, there's 22 fast riders on fast bikes and there's only 15 scoring places. Yeah, and Dave, you mentioned progress whenever we were talking about KTM there, but I think if everyone's looking at who's made the most progress over the winter tests or over the winter, Aprilia is the name that jumps off the sheet. But is it real or is this just Elish is always class in Qatar? I remember on the forward CRT bike, he was immense in 2014. Should have had the pole position, but his head went in the qualifying session. He had a couple of crashes. He went on to the Aprilia in, what was it, 2017, I think was his first race on the Aprilia. He puts it into the top six. It looked like, you know, Aprilia is here now, but we're still waiting for him to turn that corner. So obviously in Qatar, we never really get a true picture of things because it's one of those tracks where Aleish is just lights out tremendous around. It suits his style. He's able to make pretty much any bike work there. But over the course of the test, we've seen that Aprilia has been fast all the way through. Whether you're looking at single lap pace, race pace, you know, 10 lap pace, whatever it is, Elish has been really impressive. So maybe they haven't made that much progress where we're going to see them do this all the way through the season. But for those first two rounds, you know, Elish could spring a bit of a surprise. And, you know, at the end of the day, I'm viewing a surprise for Elish. If he comes away with a top eight finish, I think that's a great result for Aprilia. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, the most entertaining part was, you know, he said he started off with one of his debriefs saying, um, um, uh, yeah, Massimo Rivola, the team boss is uh, is here and he's told me I'm not allowed to be optimistic um, because it really does look like there is a change. Like you say, you know, one lap, it's easy to be fast around a track for one lap. But uh, what was much more impressive was Espargaro's race pace. His race pace was really, really good. Um, uh, it looked properly competitive. Uh, uh, I, you know, top six, top five, you know, podium. Podium is probably a bit difficult again, but a podium is difficult for everyone. But he generally looked like he had sort of top six pace, and that is definitely where they uh, where they belong. The bike uh, hasn't uh, changed. There was there was a big change between two thousand and nineteen, two thousand and twenty. Um, they changed the engine angle. They changed lots and lots of things. They've refined a lot um, uh, this year. That's that's a much better, uh, more positive process than the big revolution. When you do a big revolution, it's really easy to um, make uh, mistakes, um, which you know you're heading in the right direction but uh, but but things can still go wrong whereas if you are if you're taking a package which you know and then you're refining it and trying to improve it that i think is uh, uh, that it's easier to get right and it really looks like and it really feels like that's what uh, aprilia have done this year i uh for my size dave i stand by what i said on the last podcast and that aprilia have made 
progressed by the fact that their engines weren't blowing up quite so much, but then they're still going to be hum- hamstrung by the fact that they're one and a half riders, uh, you know, with all respect for Lorenzo Salvadori and the task ahead of him, you know, in 2021, um, you know, with, with just the Lesh leading the team, you know, they, I, th- I think that limits their possibilities. Yeah, but again, it's a chicken and egg thing. I mean, you know, they need, uh, they really need four bikes on the grid with, uh, you know, three, four really strong riders. Um, but strong riders don't want to ride an Aprilia, uh, because there are perfectly, uh, uh, there are very, very competitive, uh, Ducatis available. There are du- uh, competitive Hondas available. Um, so that the, they have other, that they have other options. Um, and no one really trusts whether Aprilia's capable, Aprilia is capable of actually being competitive. But I, I mean, it, yeah, it is honestly so difficult to say. Like we say, like, like Steve was saying, we've been in before, uh, Aleish looking really, really great and then things going horribly wrong. So I, I mean, I, I would like to feel optimistic and I might just feel optimistic for the hell of it. But, um, uh, it really, I wouldn't bet more than about two and a half euros on it. Two and a half whole euros. <laughs> yeah. Cause I, I was just actually looking through my notes there on Aleish. And since that race in Qatar 2017, his first race on the Aprilia, he finished sixth. He's had, you know, another couple of top six finishes. Obviously, Aprilia had that one day with Andrea Iannone in Phillip Island where he was able to battle at the front but that sixth place finish has been the high watermark and I think realistically if they're able to match that it's been a great weekend for them I don't actually see it I think if they can come away with decent points it's a good weekend and I think I'd be very surprised if they carry that form to the more traditional circuits the we get to once we get to Europe I think this is a bit of a perfect storm for Aprilia, a perfect storm for Aleish, and I don't really see it happening. I think MotoGP, it's very competitive right now, as we said earlier on, but uh, I think that also means that while you can hook it all up and have a really good weekend, so can other guys. And I, I just think Aprilia's got too many things that they need to prove that they've made that big step forward. I think Aprilia are almost like the opposite of KTM, where KTM know this is a really bad track for them. And so, you know, anything they can get is a bonus. Aprilia, um, it's a good track for Aleish. It's a good track for the bike. Um, uh, they know that Aleish, Aleish can get the result. It's the same with Ianoni. I mean, you know, why was Ianoni, uh, uh, get such a, why was he so strong that year at, uh, Phillip Island? Because, He's fantastic around Philip Island, and Philip Island is all about the rider. Um, and so it's not representative. So I think we find out the value of Aprilia at other tracks. Um, we might find out the value of KTM uh, at other tracks as well. But I mean, like, uh, I am more optimistic about the Aprilia at other tracks. And I'm fairly sure that once we get to other tracks, then the KTM is going to be absolutely monster. It's going to be absolutely fantastic. Um, but I expect Aprilia, I expect KTM to have a you know, a, a fairly modest weekend. Um, uh, and I expect Prillia to have a decent weekend. Yeah, a whole two and a half euro to, on them to have a decent <laughs> weekend as well, Dave. So does that go along with uh, your money from the earlier bet as well? Or is this is this just uh, <laughs> Steve, all monopoly price, money from you? It's the price of a milky coffee. That's what it is. <laughs> I tell you what, I, you could almost get a tiramisu for two and a half euro. Now, depending on if Dave wins his bet, he could get a full tiramisu. I could, yeah, but um, I might as well just set fire to the money. And um, uh, although setting fire to coinage is obviously quite difficult, 
Um, uh, but uh, I think I would rather try to set fire to coins than actually uh, attempt to eat a tiramisu. I'll be honest, Dave. I think if if I was to have a bet with you for two and a half euro, I think I'd just take a fiver, tear it in half, and then <laughs> give you one half of it and say, yeah, you can fuck off. But... Uh, <laughs> Apart from all the testing news, there was big news from Qatar as well. And that was that we've had a vaccine rollout just for the MotoGP paddock. The Qatari government has been able to do that. And the good news from that is there's been a pretty big uptake on it with pretty much all the teams, riders, all availing of the opportunity. And this is this is good news for the championship. It's good news for pretty much everyone related to MotoGP because it means that even though we're still going to have PCR tests as standard routine, we're still going to have mask wearing as standard routine going forward, this at least shows light at the end of the tunnel for the championship. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, also there were positive cases in Qatar, you know, just for the test. So it goes to show, you know, if you're having a, a traveling circus going around the world, you need to have some sort of pr- protective kind of... Uh, you know, possibilities there. I mean, I think the first reaction to the vaccine is why not? I mean, if, if it's a, it's available and it's uh, given to you, there's, you know, why not do it? I mean, especially as these guys are going to move straight to Portugal, they're going to go to Spain, they're going to start bouncing around different continents. So people are given an extra layer of protection, then great. I mean, there is a moral and an ethical uh, gray area that comes with it. I don't think there's a clear right or wrong reaction to this situation. Um, it really depends on your personal opinion, uh, even your personal experience with a pandemic. So it's it's a tricky one. Yeah, and I think, David, that when you look at it, this is a, a paddock that has been affected by COVID. We've just lost Fausto Grassini. We've had lots of other cases where people within the paddock have lost someone. It could be a parent. It could be just any an, anyone else that they know. And I think that for a lot of people, like I'd said, you know, there's ethical questions that will come into things. But, you know, if you're offered something like this, it's it's like being offered a lottery ticket. Are you going to take it or are you going to leave it? Everyone's going to take it. And, uh, you know, I think that was what was positive from this was that the vast majority of people did take up the opportunity. And fair enough, if, if people didn't want to take it and, you know, they've given it the right thought process and they've made that decision that's a different thing but you know i thought that for the championship as a whole and for the paddock as a whole i think this was great because it shows people that we're coming to the end of things as well where we can get back to normal eventually there is it, it's a very complex thing just for moto gp just for the people in the paddock um it's fantastic also as a role model seeing all of these people getting vaccinated uh, seeing all the riders get vaccinated uh, um uh, that again it, it's very positive um and it as you said it gives people like hope that we are nearer the end of the pandemic than the beginning of the pandemic and that we're you know one day soon we'll be have, able to have fans and have races again like in the way that we used to yeah i think you know we, we got another example of it this week where Chaz Davis had to miss the Mizano Superbike test. Rossi missed two races. Jorge Martin missed races last year. Could have cost him a world championship. You know, no one wants to see that. And for me, you know, I look at Formula One was offered this as well in Bahrain and they turned it down because they thought that it would look bad for, like you said, David Q jumping. But that's an issue for the Bahraini government to sort out with their electorate. It's an issue for the Qatari government to sort out. Well, their population, <laughs> whatever, they're, they're taxpayers. But, uh, you know, these are things for those governments to sort out. I know that if, you know, the Irish government decided to do it, I'm sure there'd be a big conflict of interest in Ireland for why are these people getting it? But 
you know, that's not an issue whenever you're offered it. If you're offered it, you're offered it. And you can either take it or you can, you know, go on without it. But I think that uh, it's one of those things where this was an opportunity for MotoGP to look after itself. And I'm glad that they were offered. I'm glad that they took it. It's also different because uh, between the, the other difference between F1 and MotoGP is F1 is based in the UK. The vaccine rollout in the UK has been absolutely fantastic. Um, uh, I mean, they've done lots of other things wrong in terms of actually handling the pandemic, but the vaccine uh, rollout has been absolutely fantastic. Um, I think we're 39 or 40 percent of the uh, uh, of people already vaccinated. They expect everyone to be vaccinated by uh, the August bank holiday, which is basically, you know, the Silverstone weekend. Um, so they, they've done really, really, really well. Um, it's different in Spain. I think Spain, what, eight, nine percent were, uh, uh, already vaccinated. Certainly in Holland, it's the same. I think we're up to about 11 percent. Um, so it's a completely different calculation. Uh, when you're looking at how fast your own population is or, or the, the people around you are being vaccinated and thinking it's going to going to take a long time, then you sort of like go, well, yeah, no, if we can get, if we can get vaccinated early, uh, we should do it. Whereas for most of the people in F1, most of whom are British, uh, then it's uh, then it's different. Because I think also in F1 Ferrari, who are you know based in Italy, they chose to get the vaccine, whereas the rest of them didn't. But that's because you know all the British people in their forties and fifties they'll be vaccinated. I mean, you know, people my age are getting vaccinated in uh, in the UK already. So it's it's a completely different calculation. Yeah, just before Ad, you jump in, Ferrari went to the Italian Minister of Health and said, "Is this something we should do?" And the team took the vaccine. So you can read into that what you want in terms of what the Italian Health Ministry decided was the best course of action. Yeah, I think one of the the frustrating things of the pandemic is just how uh, rapidly everything moves. I mean, we've seen now uh, in the UK that Qatar has been added to uh, the red list uh, of of countries. So that means any British-based technicians or MotoGP staff are going to have to return from Qatar and quarantine for 10 days in a hotel at quite some cost. So, you know, that adds another kind of dynamic to the, to, you know, staging the first two rounds of MotoGP in Qatar. Um, you know, there's also the whole, uh, rigmarole or fuss that seems, I mean, to my uneducated or, you know, partly ignorant, you know, um, reasoning, you know, for the, the halt on the AstraZeneca, um, vaccine, uh, you know, it's going to slow the vaccine programs down in, in Europe. So, you know, if, if, if the MotoGP paddock again is in Qatar and gets the possibility to have this shot and get that extra layer of, uh, security protection, not just for them and their jobs, but then when they get back to their families, then, uh, you know, it's a positive thing. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, you know, the AstraZeneca thing is completely different. That's just, that's, um, uh, people being excessively cautious when there's no need. And I think it's actually really, really delaying things and, uh, and a bad move generally. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, obviously why Ferrari accepted it is because, uh, or, or why the Italian government told Ferrari to accept it is because it, it saves, um, it saves the Italian government a bunch of vaccines, really, that they can, they can send to other people. That's another way of looking at, you know, that's a thousand, twelve hundred people who are getting vaccinated in, in Qatar. Um, and that means there's going to be, those vaccines will be available in, in other countries for them. So that, that is also a positive. 
Yeah, because apparently Mark Marquez was criticised in Spain because one of his comments was, "I went to Qatar, I had the vaccine, and that's that's a, that's a, a vial that's going to be for somebody else." And you know, and I think he's right. I mean, it's not it's not the case where uh, governments have millions and millions and millions of, of vaccines stockpiled, and uh, there's just one big long queue. I mean, at the moment, there's a there's a shortfall, there's a shortage of this this medicine. So I think you know, if if they're in the slow vaccine rollout, particularly in Spain. Literally, the the vaccine that would have been for Marquez will go to somebody else. Yeah, and the other thing is, uh, the, the, as Steve said, the people who should be upset are the uh, are the electorate of Qatar and Bahrain. Uh, but uh, Qatar and Bahrain don't have electorates; they have subjects, um, and uh, they will do as they're told. And uh, if they don't like it, then they'll get thrown into prison. So it's really, really quite simple. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, it's not fair. It's not. Um, it, it's not justice, uh, but that's the way it is. You know, we choose to go race in these countries, so we have to put up with it. But, um, yeah, I mean, like I say, from the purpose, uh, purely personal point of view, yeah, of course you take it. And from the, the, the bigger picture, the perspective of offering people hope and also of social responsibility, this, this whole thing of everyone traveling around, you know, like the, the, we've got this traveling circus going around the world, um, uh, putting on a show. Uh, the question is, is that responsible? But if they've all got vaccinated, then all of a sudden it's okay. No, you can't have so many objections to the fact that the that, that they are actually because the chances that are actually spreading stuff you know spreading the disease around is, is now much much uh, much much less. Uh, and again, it will disrupt the, the the championship less. I mean, you know, uh, Tony Arbolino lost the Moto Three uh, championship arguably because he just happened to be sitting on the wrong flight. And how does that work if he's already been vaccinated? Then maybe they take the PCR test. Um, uh, and he doesn't automatically get a quarantine. He just gets another PCR test to make sure that he doesn't have the, uh, you know, he hasn't got the virus. So, yeah, it, it changes the whole, it normalizes everything. So, yeah, it's, uh, but it's uh, like, yeah, it's complicated. The, the, the whole world is complicated. Yeah, it's like anything else. You're trying to simplify one of the most complicated things going. And, <laughs> uh, you know, at the end of the day, we're not experts on it. And even whenever you look at some of the decisions the experts right. have made, and then the guys that have then been replacing the experts, and then they've been replaced as well. So it, it is a case of it's very fluid. And all you can do is whenever you're offered something like this, I think it's it's something that's definitely worth worth taking. Yeah, but I would uh, like to point out that I did read this thing on Twitter by a bloke. So um, obviously, I am now um, a world expert in um, epidemiology. Well, I, I thought actually the most interesting thing I saw today was that, uh, you know, it's quite possible that there might be loopholes to be found for the red country list coming back from Qatar. But obviously enough, unless like uh, Dorna or Erta are able to organize 2000 eye tests, I think everyone's going to have to do a hotel <laughs> quarantine if they go back to the UK. So everyone's going to just have to stick it out and get themselves out to Portugal. But I think for us on the uh, Paddock Pass podcast, obviously, you know, this has been a pretty busy time for us as well. And uh, we've been flat out trying to put out as much content as possible. This was obviously a review of the Qatar test. We've still got a MotoGP season preview to come. That's going to be out next week. We've got a Moto3 season preview, which also has an interview with Darren Binder in it. We've got a Moto2 season preview where we talked to Steve Sargent from Triumph and we also talked to Sam Lowe's. We've got a Ducati special that's going out on Patreon as well this week so go to patreon.com forward slash paddock pass 
podcast and uh, you can sign up for patreon there for three dollars a month and if you do you'll follow the likes of john o'rob phil calibros neil frederick tiago kevin jorge weird i think it was 15 or 16 people signed up for patreon this week and that really does make a big difference for helping us to get lots of additional content on the paddock pass podcast through the course of the MotoGP gp season so for myself steve english from adam wheeler from david Emmett, a big thank you to everyone that signed up for patreon big thank you to everyone that's listened to this week's show as well so until the next time in the paddock pass podcast a big thank you from all of us this episode of the paddock pass podcast was produced by jensen beeler david emmett steve english neil morrison and adam wheeler it was edited by brian burnett music is provided by the liberty all inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com.